Will you please turn with me in your Bibles this morning once again to the book of Acts. We are going to be looking this morning at the sixth chapter, specifically at verses 1 through 7. Acts 6, 1 through 7. You can find that passage on either page 1075 in your pew Bibles or on page 30 in your Acts journals. Last week as we brought chapter 5 to a close in our look together at the book of Acts, We found the apostles, as we said, standing at the brink of a very real, very tangible escalation of oppression being waged against the church of Jesus Christ. And it was coming from outside of the church, coming from without. They found themselves in in what amounts to a clash between two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and one of the innumerable counterfeit kingdoms of this world. And as that clash began to take shape, it produced certain characteristics in both camps that spoke to who and what they truly were. We began to see the difference between things like zeal for God and His kingdom when it's held up against zeal for self-preservation and for the kingdom of men. We saw the vast difference that exists between faith in the kingdom of God and fear in the kingdom of men. We also saw the different ways that these two kingdoms react to the truth of God's word. And all of them pointed to one kingdom, the kingdom of God, as a much more stable, much more enduring kingdom. The apostles were living to give testimony to the king, King Jesus and his kingdom. After being arrested and then miraculously freed from prison by an angel, the apostles had immediately returned to the temple to preach and to give witness to the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. They were, of course, then re-arrested and brought in once again by the captain of the temple guard to stand trial against these charges that were being leveled against them by the Sanhedrin. And we looked at what those charges were last week in verse 28. And I told you there were essentially three of them. First, they were charged with rejecting the authority of the Sanhedrin. They had told them to cease preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and they had been caught doing it on even a much grander scale. Secondly, they were charged with creating schism among God's people by spreading what the Sanhedrin claimed was heretical doctrine. They were teaching and preaching, healing the sick in the name of Jesus Christ, and clearly presenting Him to the gathered crowds as the long-awaited Messiah of Israel. And the third charge was that they were accusing or even laying the blame upon the leaders of Israel of being complicitly involved in the murder of Jesus. So Peter rose to speak for the apostles for all three charges. And to the first charge of rejecting the authority of the leaders of Israel, he indirectly said that they were guilty as charged. He said, we are certainly doing it. We are teaching and preaching that indeed Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And regardless of what you or anyone else has to say about it, we are going to continue to do so. Because we must. 
This is the very reason we exist. This is why we were created. We must preach Christ. We must obey God who commissioned us to this work and not to men. Peter was, of course, talking to those who had been charged with leading the people of God and who were failing to do it faithfully. It was what we would consider qualified civil disobedience. This is not just a flippant rebellion against their authority. There is a critical prerequisite qualifier that makes it the right thing to do. The rule or the rulers have demanded something that goes directly contrary to what God had clearly said. We looked at examples of this kind of thing from the lives of Hezekiah and Daniel. Peter then answered the second and third charges somewhat together, first to the charge that they were creating schism through heresy. The heresy being that Jesus was the Messiah and the, the Savior of God's people. And again, Peter answers, guilty as charged. Peter used the opportunity to then not shy away from preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, but to do it again, this time directing it even towards these leaders themselves. He lets them know that the God whom he serves, the God whom he trusts, is the God of our Father, his Father, their fathers. It's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And he tells them this God, our God, has raised up Jesus Christ for the salvation of his people. And you guys killed him by having him nailed to a cross. The third charge, again, guilty as charged. God has raised him up to be a savior and a prince. To bring repentance and forgiveness even to the likes of you men. Peter used the gospel of Jesus Christ as his defense for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And beloved, I said to you last week, and I say it again this morning, we simply cannot afford to miss the wonderful grace of God on display here. The mission of the apostles had not changed because of the aggressive oppression that was ramping up against them. They must give witness to Jesus and his glorious message of salvation in the gospel, and they will not let anything stand in their way. And the leaders, of course, were enraged. And they began to plan on how it was that they were going to kill these men. And the Spirit of God stirs something up in Gamaliel, a respected Pharisee and leader present with the Sanhedrin at this trial. And he rises and he warns the other leaders that they should take heed. That they should be very careful what they do with regards to these men. And in a moving speech, he basically said that if God were not with them, then they would most certainly fail and be dispersed and their movement would die. However, he said, if God were indeed with them, then they needed to know that they were drawing battle lines against Almighty God Himself. And it was a battle that they could not, and they would not, ever win. And of course, by the grace of God, 
The apostles were then beaten and released. And they praised God for the opportunity to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. And the church continued to grow as they were faithful to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to the people. Oppression from without rises. And Almighty God uses it to fill Jerusalem and the surrounding area with the precious truth of His gospel. And so Satan resorts to another tactic to thwart the work of God in the text that is before us this morning. Conflict, which certainly could become oppression, arises from within the church herself. Conflict shows up within this fledgling church even as it is growing under the power of the Holy Spirit and the proclamation of the gospel. And it threatens, or it at least appears to threaten, the unity of the church of Jesus Christ at a very critical point in its history. So if you've not already done so, I invite you to turn with me now in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6 and follow along as I read verses 1 through 7 this morning. Hear now the holy, infallible, and inerrant word of our Lord. Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, They laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again we praise you and thank you for the opportunity to partake in the ordinary means of grace this morning. We're grateful, Father, that we can come before your, your word and come before the preaching of your word. We pray this morning that your spirit would fill us, that we would hear your word, that we would see your word, that we would be transformed by that word through the power of your spirit so that we might live more and more for your glory and your glory alone. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that Luke has sort of gone out of his way to remind us of often in this book is that regardless of what circumstances are going on in and around the church of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God is growing to the glory of God and steadily, steadfastly marching forward. 
He tells us many times in these early chapters of Acts that the number of followers or the number of disciples is steadily multiplying. The church is growing rapidly as the gospel of Jesus Christ is being faithfully preached and the Holy Spirit is opening blind eyes to the glorious truth of the gospel. In the passage before us this morning, that wonderful truth, the church multiplying, is noted twice, serving as kind of bookends here in verses 1 and 7. In verse 1, Luke is noticing that as the apostles, that as the apostles' arrest and subsequent beating had passed, the apostles were now once again daily in the temple and in every house, and they did not cease teaching Jesus as the Christ. Satan had attacked the peace of the church from without. The leaders in Israel, undoubtedly jealous of the fame of the apostles' growing influence, were stirred up to wrath, and they sought to put an end to them. And the result was that God's kingdom and its message, the gospel, continued to spread and continued to be embraced. The kingdom was growing even under harsh oppression. And so Satan changes his tactics. He attacks from within. Conflict arises in this unified church. And before we dig into that, I want to ask you something this morning. Which do you think is a more effective attack of the enemy against the peace of the church of Jesus Christ? An attack from without? Visible enemies of the peace of Jesus Christ? Or an attack from within? From the ranks even of the visible church? C.S. Lewis, I think, understood the danger of division being promoted from within the church. One of my favorite books, his famous book, The Screwtape Letters, he mentions this kind of attack that we're looking at together today. And I thought of it immediately as I began to study this passage this past week. Many of you, I am sure, are undoubtedly familiar with that little book. In the book, The Screwtape Letters, Uncle Screwtape, as he refers to himself, a senior devil is writing to Wormwood, an underling devil, correspondence regarding the most effective methods of keeping the Christians in check. And Wormwood's charge, or his patient, had become a Christian. And so Screwtape, the affectionate uncle, is full of advice for Wormwood to help keep his charge impotent and from becoming a problem for, for them. And in chapter 16, he says this, My dear Wormwood, you mentioned casually in your last letter that the patient has continued to attend one church, and only one, since he was converted, and that he is not wholly pleased with it. May I ask what you are about? Why have I no report of the causes of his fidelity to the parish church? Do you realize that unless it is due to indifference... It is a very bad thing. Surely you know that if a man cannot be cured of church going, the next best thing is to send him all over the neighborhood looking for the church that suits him until he becomes a taster 
and a connoisseur of churches. The reasons are obvious. In the first place, the parochial organization should always be attacked. Because being a unity of place and not of liking, it brings people of different classes and psychology together in the kind of unity the enemy desires. The congregational principle, on the other hand, makes each church into a kind of club, and finally, if all goes well, into a coterie or a faction. In the second place, the search for a suitable church makes the man a critic where the enemy wants him to be a pupil. Lewis hits upon a few things that I think we see in practice here in Acts chapter 6. And Satan certainly attacks from without. He brings in reinforcements to stand against the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He has no desire to see the church grow in the staggering way that it is growing here. But in order to really affect change against the church of Jesus Christ, it is often much more advantageous to our enemy, the devil, to attack us from within. And as this church is growing and thriving in purpose and in God-glorifying unity, he attacks them from within. And it is at a place where if we are honest, we and many other Christians for that matter are probably uncomfortably close to it this morning. Much like Lewis's fictitious screw tape, Satan also knows full well that a unified, Holy Spirit-filled church is going to be a real problem for him. We see here in verse 2 that as the church was in the very throes of real and substantial growth, there arose a complaint in the church. And it is a complaint that certainly does threaten the unity that the church has enjoyed up to this point. The complaint appears to have been delivered to the apostles themselves as they were the ones who then took the lead in in interacting with it, even in good times. The gospel of Jesus was being proclaimed and broken sinners were running to Jesus for relief and times of growth and faith in the Spirit. In the face of miraculous healings, demons being cast away, physical and spiritual healing taking place, there arose a complaint. What was the complaint that interrupted the powerful unity of the church? Apparently, the Greek-speaking Jewish followers of Christ, the Hellenists, wanted it known that the Hebrew or the Aramaic-speaking Jewish followers of Jesus, the Hebrews, had their widows being cared for, but their own widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. I want you to understand, beloved, this is a real and a legitimate complaint. Something needed to be done. Widows abounded in both of these communities after the dispersion, and the church had undertaken by the word of God to minister to their needs. 
This is no petty thing. Though I think it would be very easy to see it as that. If you have ever had any real experience with this sort of thing in the church of Jesus Christ. It's probably our own cynicism with such things that makes us even suspect that it might have been a little or just a touch on the dramatic side here. This complaint. I want to tell you there are so many areas to touch upon here that we could legitimately look at this one passage for weeks on end and just barely touch it at all. However, this morning, I want for us to focus on just a few things here. Considering where we are going in this series as we study the book of Acts together. I want us to consider three things this morning in this narrative that I think we need to talk about. There is a right way for this kind of thing to be handled. And it's most certainly not in any fallen human being's default setting when slighted or even disrespected or treated unfairly. Three things here that I think it will help us to see in the church of Jesus Christ. There is the conflict, there is the solution, and there is the triumph. The conflict, the solution, and the triumph. The conflict, which threatens, the complaint rather, which threatens a conflict we've been looking at already. People are getting upset. People are feeling slighted and overlooked, perhaps disrespected. The Greek-speaking Jewish people's widows are not being given their daily distribution of food and necessities. And it is a real problem. And something needed to be done about it. They also needed to be cared for. And I'm sure that if Satan had his way... This complaint would do what we see so often today in the evangelical landscape where there is a church on every corner. It would lead to upset people creating division and eventually to an exodus of some of this group from the apostolic church in Jerusalem in some way to find a group that would be more accommodating to their needs. needs to be pointed out here, though, that I think this complaint, from start to finish, was handled in a way that is conducive to finding a solution to the pressing problem. For example, it appears that this complaint against the ministry of the apostles was brought directly to them. Do you see that here? It did not start in the church gossip mill. It does not appear to have been the kind of complaint that was already widespread throughout the church by the time it came through official channels. Let's be clear. Gossip destroys. That is the design of gossip. Please, beloved, do not think that you are only looking out for the good of another when you take part in gossip. That's ridiculous. You are not. It is always hateful. It never seeks justice. It only seeks destruction and the death of reputation and good name. It is a tactic of Satan to ruin the peace of the church. 
Slander hurts your neighbor's good name, which the law of God demands that you uphold. But this complaint, that at least appeared to have the power to do harm to the peace and unity of the church, was not handled in that way. It came to the apostles directly. And it also came without a preconsidered reason for the oversight on the part of, on the, part of the apostles. We need to see that. We might assume it, but there is no accusation of motive in this complaint. No one is here questioning the motives of the apostles and allowing for this kind of injustice under their watch. It's simply a problem seeking a solution, not further problems. We also see here that the complaint was received and then immediately considered by the apostles. They do not get defensive. There is no back and forth between warring factions. No one is picking sides and then throwing shade at anyone who would dare to be found on the other side, the wrong side of the problem. No one is towing party lines in this. It would appear to be an innocent oversight on the part of the apostles. The busyness of their ministerial tasks were actually more than they could handle. They were wrong to overlook it. And their wrong is acknowledged and even corrected as they call together the congregation to bring this conflict to a workable solution, as they should. Because this problem really does threaten the unity of the church. The unity that has been such a part of the gospel being faithfully proclaimed and the ministry of the apostles of reconciliation that's taking place daily in the temple and in the houses around Jerusalem. Beloved, a unified church is a powerful church. But we also need to understand here that not all complaints are good complaints. This one is dealt with immediately because it is a good complaint. It is a problem that demands a solution. A problem that really is at the very heart of their ministry. This is not about personal taste or style or any other surface thing. This is about needs, legitimate needs, being met in the church of Jesus Christ. And the apostles are clearly in above their head to a certain degree here, right, with the work. They're being overwhelmed with the sick, the lame, the blind, the deaf, the infirm, the demon-possessed. They're being swamped by those who seek both physical and spiritual healing. They are certainly busy. But that does not make it okay. And so they gather together the congregation and they propose a solution. That's the second thing I wanted to talk about, the solution. The solution to the problem, then, is not that the apostles get better at keeping their calendars. It's not for them to step down from their office because of such careless oversight. No. The solution is to get help. To raise up more servants for the kingdom. Because first and foremost, they make it known that they themselves 
are busy and that they are busy doing exactly what God had called them to do. They are preaching and teaching that there is life in Jesus Christ. That Jesus saves. That Jesus is the Messiah. That he came down to seek and save the lost. That his grace is much more than just sufficient for them. All these things they are doing. And they must be freed up to continue in and even do more of it. Because it is necessary work. The world is in darkness all around them and they must get people to Jesus Christ. They must proclaim the good news that Jesus came and lived and died and rose again to make dead things come alive. They said to the congregation, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. In other words, the answer cannot be that we cut back on the ministry of Christ to serve physical needs. They must preach and teach Christ. Salvation comes, the kingdom grows through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you see? What is the answer then? It's to raise up help in the work. Verses 3 and 4, Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Choose seven men who fit the criteria of being known as having good reputations, being in possession of the Holy Spirit, and being in possession of verifiable wisdom. Those are the qualifications. This is the first diaconate, right? Luke doesn't call it that. I'm not making the case that he does. But that is what it is. And of course, the problem is solved. The congregation loves it. They pick seven men, and in the providence of God, they all have Greek names. Undoubtedly, they are all Greek speakers to aid the apostles in handling the distribution to the widows fairly and completely. The apostles then lay hands on the seven men, and they commission them for the work. Well, where did that idea come from? How did the apostles, under this kind of pressure, formulate such a wise solution to a problem that really did threaten the unity of the church of Jesus Christ? You could see how quickly this thing could spin out of control. Cultural differences. People of different races, different walks of life, different psychology, as uh, uh, Lewis says in, in Screwtape when he's talking about the church. How did they come up with it? Was it their seminary training? Come on. For the most part, these men are fishermen and tax collectors. But that's not all, is it? Do you remember what Luke says about them? 
after the resurrection, before the ascension of Jesus Christ. These men spent time learning at the foot, the feet of the master. It's probably both feet, wasn't a foot. At the feet of the master. They knew the word of God. Satan's greatest enemy. The word of God. It was the weapon of choice for Jesus himself in his temptation at the hands of the devil in the wilderness. It is the weapon and the armor of God in Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The source of all wisdom. Our first and best line of defense against Satan and his wiles is the Word of God. And so they go to the Word of God. And where do they go in the Word? Many would understandably go to the narrative in Exodus 18 that takes place between Jethro, the father-in-law of Moses, and Moses himself about Moses' unrealistic workload. He said, Moses, you need help. Choose 70 elders from the tribes to help you in the work. You need to be freed up to do the other work for God and his people that he's called you to. And so they do it. I think that's possible. However, beloved, I personally see a better parallel through the passing of the Spirit and the authority to lead Israel from Moses to Joshua. In Numbers 27, the passage I almost didn't read this morning. There are some thought-provoking similarities. The process is similar with both. Both selections are rooted in the providence of Almighty God. Both are to be done before the congregation. Both are solemnized through the laying on of hands. You say, yeah, okay, but... How, Steve, is the work similar? I want you to remember, these apostles received their training in biblical theology from Jesus Christ himself. The author and the finisher of our faith. What will Joshua do? Well, he'll lead the people of God, right? Is that all? Is that the only similarity? It is one. But he will lead them in what task? In the conquest of Canaan. Does that make the similarities fall apart? No. What will the magnificent seven do? They will serve widows. Is that all? No. Do you know the book of Acts? These men, the seven beginning with Stephen, will with the Greek language, their native tongue, tongue, take the gospel to the nations. To the Gentiles. And the kingdom of God will take its message from in and around Jerusalem into the world. You see it now? Think about God's amazing grace in this whole thing. Because these widows were overlooked in the busyness 
of ministering the Word of God, a conflict arose. A conflict that demanded a solution. The church complained against the apostles. And these Greek-speaking men were selected by criteria, being of good reputation, being full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Satan would love for that conflict to shut the mouths of these apostles either way, either by giving them so much table service that the gospel is silenced, or by raising questions to their adequacy to even do the job and having them removed. But by the grace of Almighty God, it serves only to raise up these Greek-speaking disciples of Jesus Christ who not only care for widows, but undoubtedly do much, much more. These men who know Jesus and his word and who take that word to the nations, will take that word to the nations, rending the darkness with the glorious light of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Stephen, next week, will give his life for it. This is a glorious triumph of the church of Jesus Christ here. We need to recognize it. That's the third thing, right? The triumph. Because Luke tells us in verse 7, Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many priests were obedient to the faith. Can you imagine? Even those who had made themselves the enemies of God through the rejection of Jesus as the Messiah were transformed by the Spirit of God through the proclamation of the gospel and even they were saved. Beloved, God will build His kingdom and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Do you see it? Do you celebrate this kind of amazing grace in the church of Jesus Christ? Grace that took a sinner like you and like me and dressed us in the rich, righteous robes of the Lord Jesus Christ's perfection. Because this is the Christian life. We welcome Max into membership of the visible church today. He stood up here, he gave witness to the Lord Jesus Christ, both through his articulation of the faith before the elders in his exam and in front of you through his public profession of faith this morning. It's fitting. All of you who are members of this church, you are called not just to give testimony or witness to the saving work and person of Jesus Christ, but to see to it that the church fulfills its mission. To preach and teach the gospel of Jesus Christ to a world that so desperately needs to hear it. Did you watch the news this week? This world needs Jesus. This world needs reconciliation. How important is that to you this morning? Do you hear God's call to service here? What part will you play? Do you uphold the mission? Or do you seek something else entirely from the church than the opportunity to serve like this? Do you seek your own thing? 
Do you, through constant grumbling and complaining, seek to exasperate the work of the gospel? Are you a willing servant sold out for the mission to seek and save the lost? Or are you simply the dupe of Satan? Grumbling, complaining, seeking only division and ultimately the silencing of the gospel. Because it's clear here, isn't it? You cannot be a little bit of both. You are one or the other. But beloved, the good news is that the door of salvation is still wide open in Jesus Christ. Come, lay down your burden and be free to fulfill the purpose of your existence. To exalt the precious name of Jesus Christ our Lord above every other name. Amen? Let's pray.